I think that Gaston from Beauty and the Beast is actually the hero of the story. And I can prove it. So if you watch <laughs> if you watch I can the cartoon it. and you just watch the parts with Gaston and not with the Beauty and the Beast part, um, he's just a local hero. He's kind of a pompous windbag. But overall, he's there to save the town. He really thought he was the hero of the story. If you watch the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, they had to add all these other scenes that make him a villain. Because before, he was not. Like, at one point in the new one, he abandons Maurice in the woods to be eaten by wolves. And that's, like, objectively evil. But before, he just, he was excusably not really a villain. Well, I feel like Mm. any villain, if you cut the film right... Yeah. Can, any good villain, if you cut the film right, can look like a hero. He, well, he never really did anything bad. Like, so Maurice runs in and he says there's a beast and he just like makes fun of him and throws him out. Gets him committed. That's not necessarily evil. He's protecting the well-being of the town from a madman. Yeah. You, you don't even have to recut the film. Like, you just, you just watch the film. There you go, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about villains that like, that we don't think are actually villains, I think for me, like, Watchmen, both the comic book and the movie and the future tv show uh ozymandias from that is he's not a bad guy Hmm. like he is a utilitarian and he decided that he would kill a million people to save a billion people that's the most jake thing i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) i love it because it's like the like i love villains that are just so logical and really if you look at his logic his reasoning the math checks out hmm. and it's really interesting to see the dynamic of philosophies um to the point that uh, it, it gets so gray that you almost can't even navigate you know you you lose all of those classical good versus evil it, it just it falls away and it's just this gray fog of war that i just i love navigating that gray so you could hmm. say that the alternate title for watchmen would just be 50 shades of gray Oh, zinger. <laughs> I'm sickened. Yeah. <laughs> no, Osmondeus, he was right. I really think like Rorschach would have ruined it. And with his journal potentially did ruin peace on earth. Mm. Like, oh, it's so complicated and good. So I think that brings me to my least villain villain. The one you agree with? The one that I... Least villain, villain. Yeah, he's he's the one who is least mean. <laughs> least mean. And that that would be Magneto. Ooh. I think that he has he's almost an anti-hero, but depending yeah. upon like the situation, he's he's very he's often portrayed as a villain, even though a lot of what he is fighting to achieve can really be justified for the most part. Yeah. So yeah. while he may go to extreme measures, a lot of what he seeks to accomplish is really almost noble in a sense. He's just yeah. willing to do more than Xavier was. Because mm-hmm. in the comics, I think maybe more than the movies of the X-Men, in case you don't know that Magneto was from the X-Men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Magneto is just willing to kill and and get his way. Yeah. Do what it takes to survive. Take charge. Wait, Magneto's the guy from... Uh... The guy from Star Wars, right? Oh, get out. Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, episode 10, 
villains, antagonists, and bad guys. So I guess we should start off by defining terms. So what would you guys define a villain as? So I would define a villain as uh, a character who is both humanized and uses nefarious means to achieve their ideals. Humanized. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that humanized word. I don't know if I... So then, like, would Sauron from Lord of the Rings not be a villain? Because he's basically an eye the whole time. I think he's humanized throughout to an extent yeah i think through his lieutenants like sauron is almost like an embodiment of him but also through the orcs and through the urukai um even though you never really see him so he's kind of a what would you call that a a metaphysical i almost almost wouldn't define it's like a satanic one because like even in like the you know the the traditional like biblical satan he's not um He's not really character characterized unless you read like Paradise Lost, where he's characterized exceptionally. Um, so yeah, that that humanization is. I don't know. So I, I don't almost, know if that's too specific. I would almost agree with you, and I would say that he's not a villain. He's an evil entity. Hmm. I I oh that cr- that creates villains beneath. Yes. Him. Oh, that's good because because when you look at those um you know the orcs that are kind of the. The leaders, you know, some of them have specific scars and specific markings. You're like, oh yeah, like that's that's a villain. But like, yeah, they're they're kind of on the front lines and they're not the biggest bad, but they are definitely humanized. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Sauron is sin or something like that. Like he's this concept who just yeah begets evil. And for me, this metaphysical thing. Yeah, and almost like a a hero, you need to have somebody embodying like an ideal and you don't see that in Sauron. He's just kind of like the crazy ideal of what corruption, corruption, the opposite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's disorder and chaos. Yeah. And you can see it embodied through the orcs and through everybody that is corrupted by the ring and such. Yeah. Bringing it back to D and D for a second. I think that um, they tend to display good and evil as on one end you have, law and order and then on the other end you have chaos and and, um, i don't want to say destruction but disorder so it's not like it's necessarily evil but it is just a lack of um order let me just go in a big circle i would disagree (laughs) really yeah because like like order like law and good are not necessarily the same thing like you could be chaotic i mean the whole alignment chart speaks to those separate axes Hmm. you know so I don't know. I think a villain, I would define a villain much more simply and just be someone or even something. It'd probably be someone or like a creature, mm-hmm. a creature or a person who is fighting against the protagonists. Oh, just as simply as that. He's just fighting. Just very broad. Yes. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, okay. I, so I hope that our fans have seen Black Panther because the villain in that film is actually the hero of that film. His name is Killmonger, uh, and arguably, <laughs> arguably, Killmonger is a better hero than Black Panther. Fight me. Hmm. Oh, I mean, I think he's a good villain, um, for sure. I think he um, forces but, change in uh, Black Panther, which hmm. makes Black Panther a better character Dang. in the long run. They both want to see the success of Wakanda, but they just see that path completely differently. Mm-hmm. So getting away from kind of the philosophy of what makes someone a protagonist or an antagonist, which is 
real murky waters <laughs> and is really interesting. But how do you guys begin to create your villains? How do you, you know, recognize them as different than the party members? So it's funny. Um, in the, our world building episode, I talked about building from the ground up. But when I'm building villains, I start, I guess you would say, from the middle down. And that is you have a state of the world huh. and you just flow it down to the lowest level that's recognizable and um, interactive with interactive on the part of the players. So the example I would give is just think of a, a natural phenomenon, something like, um, let's say, a drought. And a drought leads to a famine. And so maybe that starts a resource and then that starts a resource war with a bunch of small city-states. Um, and then one of those city-states comes out on top and then... Before you know it, you have somebody with all the food and all the power and all the control over this small area that the players are now interacting with. So it's not even necessarily that this person is evil. Maybe they wield and dealed and uh, backstabbed their way to the top of the order, um, but their significance came out of a situation that's very natural. Oh, that's so weird that you go the that's opposite way. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that because I don't know if... I feel like I start building my villains or like creating just like a concept of a villain. Mm -hmm. Like, I, like I start with a concept and then find a way to almost pigeonhole him or her into the world. And I don't know, maybe I will start from the middle down just to see <laughs> how, you know, how the world can affect. Well, how do you normally do it, Jake? Villain. How do I normally create a villain? Mm -hmm. I honestly, I think of a cool concept and I, I really, I'm just like, how do I get this guy in here? Because villains are some of my favorite parts of D&D because I, I love role-playing and I love role-playing as the bad guy. I love hamming it up and being ridiculous and over the top, you know, monologuing and just making, I want the, the players when the villain shows up, they just go, Oh, like I want him to just be <laughs> horrifying and terrifying and annoying and a real threat that they, you know, they know him so well, him or her so well that, I don't know, I, I love villains so much. So for me, I think of a concept and then I just try to figure out how that would fit in the world. So for mm. for example, one um, one of my best villains, I think, was just kind of a, a businessman. Um, and he basically is kind of like Osmond Diaz. Like he's just very utilitarian, thinks about mm. only the greater good, will smash a family of children if it means that, you know, a few more people survive and he'll make a few more oh. bucks. Um, you know, he is just completely brutal, but also mathematical. Um, and I kind of based his concept off of the character in Blade Runner 2049 played by Jared Leto. Uh, Jared Leto. Yeah. Um, oh. And so I, I, I just see his character and he's so... He's so right, and he's so he knows what he wants. Like, and then I, I kind of model even his acting off of him. Like, you know, just we should have made it to the stars by now. Like, just kind of the whispering. Like, oh, it's just so good. And so, a lot of times, my players will catch me because they'll they'll catch one of my villains and be like, "Wait, that's basically this from this." And I'll be like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> so I think hmm. I I start with a concept that I find honestly just fun to role play and then i figure out how that can how i can be justified to interact with my players as this hammy over the top villain hmm. i think those are both like two interesting ways of making villains mm -hmm. and i do it a little differently so 
Will starts by basing the villains in his world and what would make sense. And then you just take a concept that you really like and just apply it into the world. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is I like to take a character that's almost pre-existing in the world and mold them into a villain based off of how the party interacts. Oh. So it's the villain for me is someone who is meant to be foiled by the heroes. So you look at any good dynamic villainous relationship like Batman and the Joker, it's very yin yang where they kind of play off each other and they play off the same ideals. And when you make when I like to make a villain, they kind of represent that same thing where they they take an idea of a group and they kind of push it and they kind of take it and look at it in a different way so that they're kind of playing off the ideals of the party, but maybe to a more extreme extent. Do you have an example? Okay. So you don't create your villains until you have your players. No, because I don't oh. To have a compelling villain. You need to have characters to play off of who have pre-existing goals that they want to oh, achieve. So they need to foil kind of mm-hmm. the characters archetypes. Yep. Okay. And I feel like for me, that makes them more compelling and more interesting because these people are trying to achieve something that is counter or almost very similar, but in a twisted manner. So it makes them mm-hmm. more relatable. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about the past games I've run and the villains I've had, and I'm realizing that I don't really have a main villain in the game or in the story. In general, what I have is a lot of, well, this is probably uh, symptomatic of the fact that my games don't go on for very long and that I tend to have a more organic story that develops. There's a concept that I just love um, from a blog called The Alexandrian he talks about using natural selection to build your villains. And what that means is you don't have one central villain. You have a whole bunch of people fighting each other. And the players are going to kill them off. If you've ever played certain video games like uh, Batman Arkham Asylum comes to mind, you'll interact oh, yeah. With, yeah. with villains in a cutscene or behind a wall, behind glass, and you can't really kill them. But there's a thing that happens in Dungeons & Dragons where the players can do anything. And so if you are careless, and, and as a new GM I've done this, you have your villain right up and say, ha ha, I defeated you. And then the players just kill that person. And you're like, well, what do I do now? That was my guy. So uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so using natural selection is like, well, I have 20 villains or 20 potential villains fighting each other. And you killed one. So now everyone else just sort of moves in and takes their territory, recruits their thugs, whatever. Um, the world goes on. It's very Game of Thrones. Oh my gosh, that's so different than how I do it. Because I, what I do is, since my games, this may be a symptom of my games being longer and more, you know, taking place over a much longer period of time with a lot more sessions in the campaigns, I will introduce the villain as fast as I can. And I want this villain to be reoccurring because I think, um, I think it's really evident in our culture that nostalgia is really just a very cheap trick to incite enjoyment very quickly it works so and well. so so when you have a character that shows up is evil and then leaves and then shows up again the characters are like oh wait that's the guy from before and they get really excited and they're like oh my gosh and it's like it's this recurring villain i feel like is such an easy way to score you know kind of narrative points going forward and kind of talking about what you said about villains being killed i have just a 
my sleeve is full of <laughs> tricks to keep my villains alive. Like um, one time, uh, the villain I was talking about earlier, uh, Solomon Maven, who's kind of the the businessman archetype. Um, they they visited him in his tower, and they were talking to him, and he basically admitted to um, kidnapping one of their one of their uh, loved ones, hmm. and they were like getting really upset and he was just poking them just like saying like i have complete power over you there's Ooh. nothing you can do and you know just just really hamming it up and and one of them's like i i can't do this like my character would would do this and he just draws his sword and stabs him hmm. and i'm like okay and it just goes right through spoilers for the last jedi it goes through just like <laughs> oh kylo's lightsaber God. right and, it, and it's revealed <laughs> that he's a and it's revealed that he's uh, a hologram. And then he says, do you think I'd be stupid enough to leave myself alone unarmed with you fools? You know, just something like, so it's like, and then they get even more frustrated because they're like, oh, we don't even know if he's really here. And so, I don't know. I love having the villain show up repeatedly, um, getting that nostalgia hit, and then them being so evil and so powerful that, that the characters can't you know that they they have to deal with the villain's crap they can't just mm. slit their throat they have to deal with it i find myself wondering if jake's players are going to listen to this and be like well now we have to kill or we have to try to kill the villain every time to see all, <laughs> all of the tricks you have burn through his bag of tricks <laughs> they're going to realize they never had control see i almost i almost don't like jake's approach because I've encountered it in other games where he J, Jake is a very good DM and disagree. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and and he and the way he runs his game is really really good. But I've encountered people who do a similar thing, and it it they comes it other DMs who have done similar things, and it has come across as extremely cheesy and frustrating to like not be able to kill a villain who is you know right there and it's like oh i predicted he was the villain and i you know slit his throat and then mm -hmm. it doesn't do anything that that's kind of frustrating and yeah it, it doesn't feel it takes away from the immersion of the game which i really value and i think that you can almost have more interesting consequences in fallout when you do kill a person that big because there is most certainly a power structure that they are in charge of and what happens when there's that power vacuum from when they die. Hmm. You have to be yeah. careful. Yeah. Because people can kill off your villains and then you find yourself wondering, well, what do I do? We saw this happen in Star Wars in the prequels, which as much as I love slash hate them, there's a lot of lessons you can learn. For instance, Darth Maul was this villain in, <laughs> in episode one and he was great or he seems to be great. He wasn't actually, but like since then he's become great. And, but then he gets killed. In the next movie, you think, who's your villain? Well, now he's replaced by Dooku, and then he gets killed. And then in the third movie, he gets replaced by General Grievous, who then gets killed to make room for Darth Vader. And it's it seems kind of short-sighted to me to see... Um, the, I think Darth Maul should have been a villain the entire way through. That would have been fantastic. See, and I think that proves my point, because it's like that that boost of nostalgia and that like reoccurringness of it makes it fantastic. But... I, to David's point, um, I think there is kind of a social contract with the players and the DM. Um, some DMs are just like, this is this is a world, a free open world, go do whatever you want. There's no plot, there's no anything. But if the players are accepting an overarching 
plot from the DM, then like I think they will accept some of these cheesy moments or some of these moments uh, that the DM brings up that are obviously plot points or that are obviously like part of the narrative. Um, and that takes a degree of trust, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I feel like you can't mm-hmm. go into your average game store and start up a game and as a DM just start throwing out these plot points and have the players listen to your monologues. Absolutely not. But like if you have a group, like a table that trusts you as a DM and your narrative uh, and what you can bring to the table narratively, like I think I think it can work out, but it is a strange dynamic and you can't you can't monologue and pull out all the cheese <laughs> for your plot all the time. Yeah, so I think also to to counter that as well, not to counter it, but to go along with it, I do think that DMs need some sort of flexibility for when they get bested by the players out of out of sight. Yeah. You can't just yeah. always have the villain be a hologram because yeah. That that gets frustrating and it feels like you have no control. So you do need to, as a as a DM, be able to let things happen, even if it goes against what you your vision for the plot is. Mm-hmm. You can but, always you can always seek to improvise and make a greater plot from it. And I think it's also important to not be so um crass as to be like well you killed the big villain but his lieutenant who looks and sounds and behaves just like him just takes his place and essentially you change nothing because i think that's boring and that makes the players feel like they didn't really do anything um so with my technique uh, and with jake's technique i feel like these are different sides of a spectrum and they can and they both can be really fun but it's going to depend heavily on the group and the, the people you play with yeah the bottom line is tailor your game to your group don't make your game, don't make your plot, your narrative, uh, your system, whatever. Don't have it so rigid that a group would come in and couldn't break it. Like, allow your players to to stretch you as the DM. Um, I think, going back to what David said, um, I think what separates a villain from a DMPC is with the DMPC, you're, you're kind of have an NPC in the party who's just, you know, perfect. And maybe he's got an accent that you're good at. And you just want to keep having this person in the game to feel like you're a part of it as the DM. But the main thing that separates that from a villain is with a villain, you can never forget that you are playing as the inevitable loser. Hmm. Like, in the end, the villain should, most of the time, lose. And so you have to keep that in mind, no matter how attached you are to your villain, this villain should be defeated yeah, or should be yeah. banished or should be whatever. But there should be a sense of winning, a sense of accomplishment from the players over the villain. Always keep that in mind when you're role playing as a villain, when you're planning out your villains, that this villain is an inevitable, an eventual loser. That's Really good point to uh, yeah. to keep in mind. Um, but also important that villains play to win and they're not going to pull punches or yes, let the players yes. walk over them. Um, there's a concept in creative writing called the idiot ball and it's a form of bad writing <laughs> when you have normally intelligent people um, just behaving unusually dumb because they're holding the idiot ball. And so it's it, it would be a huge letdown, I think, to have your villain suddenly just make a huge blunder that's um, obviously the wrong move and then lose. Yeah. Let's talk about the different kinds of villains that 
GMs can think about when they're building their villain because they're not all the same, not even close. Okay, so hmm. the main archetype that comes to mind for me is kind of the Voldemort, Sauron, you know, kind mm. of overarching, distant. obviously distant, you know, threat that kind of looms over the whole. But campaign. they kind of they kind of get closer as the story goes on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, they're yeah. going to Mount Doom, which is kind of like where Sauron lives or exists, and then Voldemort also is always getting closer. So yeah. Um, I guess it starts off kind of conceptual. Maybe this is a, a type of villain that's best for a grand sweeping campaign where you hear about him so. and you see what mm-hmm. he's doing over time, the destruction of the land. Um, and eventually you get there and you're like, hey, I know you, but he's never really interacted with you personally. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. He's yeah. definitely not intended to be level one straight out of the gate like <laughs> yeah. hey here you go here's here's your voldemort like go fight him right now at, well, actually voldemort I I, did try to fight harry at level one and, oh. uh, but he failed that's <laughs> true <laughs> i think another like reason these villains kind of the distant threat archetype um you know it's kind of grand evil these fit better for longer campaigns and longer arcs because you can introduce them slowly and like david said that these guys are like level 25 like they are they're like a cosmic threat and so because of that it's going to require some macguffin or some crazy strategy in order to defeat them it's it's Mm -hmm. rarely do you walk into their lair and go all right roll initiative like there's going to be some added stuff um to these kind of this archetype of villain there's a lot of cool things you can do with this um the one that i like is the marching army like there's a horde of um white walkers or zombies wait orcs the same um orcs (laughs) or just a rival faction um it could be a disease is spreading it could be um some kind of plague is spreading like it's 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 always encroaching and always present but maybe not immediately present oh i think the best thing that fits this is the the death curse on cholt from Mm. the tomb of annihilation it's it's like it's something that the players can easily forget about and go do side quests. But then each day when they're losing health, like they're like they're reminded that they're like, <laughs> oh, this is real. This is this is happening, and we need to address this at some point. And I think that's a perfect example of it because it's it's distant. You know, it's deep, deep, deep in the jungle, and it's also omnipresent at the same time. Mm. yeah and I, but i think it's also important to make players aware of it like you're saying they wake up and they lose a, a hit point um if you're looking at harry potter with voldemort like um jk rowling definitely made this choice to cause interactions between harry and the villain um just to make yeah. sure you don't forget about them yeah because if it's mm-hmm. too distant then it's not really a priority it's important but it's not urgent and then you find the players doing every side quest and collecting every bottle in ocarina of time uh, that they, can, <laughs> they can get their hands on and and I think that maybe is a little bit of a failure. For me, with with the distant threat types of villains, what I really like to do is kind of have a almost like an all roads lead to Rome scenario where no matter what they're doing, they're always constantly reminded of the villain and they're always they're always kind of on the same path where it's almost that they're destined to eventually fight the villain. Hmm. So every quest they do will somehow interact with it. Not necessarily every quest, but in general, most quests will have some sort of tie-in. 
it's good to have all of your side quests or, or if not side quests, sort of tertiary, um, less important things kind of hook in. Uh, in our previous episodes, we've talked about tone anchors. That's a big thing we like to push. And that is that your NPCs, your world storytelling, your world building even, um, is kind of pointing in the same direction. And the quests you give can all point back to this one big threat, this one danger or the situation. If we're talking about that famine from before, um, you'll see how that impacts people. And maybe some cosmic entity is causing this famine, right? Like it's the, uh, the anime problem where you go kill the biggest thing in existence and now you have to go kill the, the next biggest thing <laughs> that's like yeah. even more. And it just keeps going all the way up, you know, turtles all the way down. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a good point. So what are some other archetypes that you guys can think of? Oh, so this one's good. Um, I like the immediacy of it. Um, I would call this the village bully, or um, I think in the Pokemon games, there was like a rival that would follow you around and they were always one step ahead. Oh, yeah. And this is yeah. just anybody who's an up-close threat or danger or antagonist. Um, like you see, um, maybe there's a, a town guard who's corrupt and he's constantly harassing people. And he's low enough level that the players can pretty quickly go in and defeat them or subdue them or, or just kill them because it's D&D &D and you're probably just going to kill them. Um, it gives you an immediate goal. Someone to hate. Yeah. I think this is hmm. a good I think this is a good uh repetitive villain that you can keep in or you can oh, keep yeah. showing. For sure. Especially from a distance, especially if you see them like, you know, commit an atrocity and then fly off on a dragon. That you really don't have a way to interact with them, but it gives you that blast of nostalgia, and you can be like, "Oh, wait, that's that guy! Oh, we got it! We got to get this guy!" You know, it hmm. gives you kind of that mentality. But but also, I think you kind of mentioned kind of the Pokemon uh, uh, Professor Oak's son, <laughs> Gary. Was it Gary? Gary was Professor Oak, and I think the rival was named Red, or is that the player name? So it's been a long it? time blue jeez we're, we're, we're losing our street cred but <laughs> but like going back to your kind of pokemon example like there's kind of the, the constant rival that's showing up at the same time at the same place where you are i think a fun not necessarily villain but they can be villains is a rival adventuring party oh i love that yeah, I think I was it's super cool to introduce like a, a group of players and even say their classes mm -hmm. and just be like, all be yeah, the exact yeah. opposite classes or even <laughs> the same <laughs> class, even the same. Oh, what even I, the same. so actually just to side rail you for a second, Jake, um, I, in a, in my current game, I made the players meet the previous party from the previous campaign and they were the same level class distribution. And I role play them as I would, or as the players role playing them oh and uh that's great yeah it was just a really quick and easy and easy to remember um encounter yeah i mean going back to this uh, okay I, I gotta tell the story so when i was in college um we would go around and it's a pretty big you know standard university campus and so we would go explore all of the old buildings at night because they wouldn't lock a lot of them so we'd go explore all these kind of old buildings and we just have a blast just kind of urban you know adventuring and so there's probably a group of five of us and we were exploring this building and we see um, another group, the same, it's probably five or six of them too. <laughs> and, and there was this moment of us just looking at each other and it, it, it was the weirdest moment. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. It was like tribalism took over and it was like, okay, this is my tribe and that's another tribe. 
And it was just so interesting to see how quickly you can kind of become rivals with someone that could be doing the same exact thing as you. And they didn't even do anything. Harmlessly. Yeah, they didn't do anything. And so I love that, like, of introducing a group that's the same as the adventuring party. That They have the same goals. Hmm. You know, they're there to just get some gold, do some quests, you know, maybe maybe venture into the big bad's lair. But, But they're kind of the same alignment or doing the same thing as the adventuring party and just see mm-hmm. how the adventuring party reacts to that. Cause a lot of times they will react. They'll treat them as hostile. <laughs> yeah. I think there was an episode of Arthur where they met a group of people who were just like the off brand versions of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> are we talking about the greatest animated television show of all time? We are. We are. Arthur. <laughs> and uh, it, oh, I remember going back, I don't know how it must've been on VHS or something, but I paused it. And I looked at their group who were just similar animals, but like they had square versions of things that were normally round oh. or their clothes were just like swapped. <laughs> and um, that's exactly what I would do uh, for a rival party. I would also make one of the rivals in that party fall in love with um, somebody in the other group. I've done that mm. before. Ooh. That way everybody else hates each other. But then there's like this forbidden love that yeah. just, you know, is a under undercurrent. I think you should have one... Uh... <laughs> One of the, the the guys is kind of the leader of the group who could, might be a little antagonistic towards the your, your party of adventurers. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, having also another one who's kind of Romeo and Julieting yeah. <laughs> the situation. Yeah, I love having the, the, the mirror or like yin-yang type dynamic villains or just even foils yeah, yeah. for the party because they're, they're so relatable. They're so, they're so familiar and yet there's that competitive tribalism rivalry that that makes so much sense one of the things i'd like to do is when you have a character who has like a brother and the brother they so they'll have the same you know growing up experience dna yeah the same (laughs) similar (laughs) dna and then one of them's evil and then you get Mm -hmm. to see how how in in one case the the Normally, the the party member of your group is has turned their situation into a motivating factor for them to be good, and the other has twisted it, almost like in Black Panther. Even though they're not brothers, mm. they both well they they kind were, of are were they brothers. brothers. They were yeah. like cousins or something, right? Yeah, yeah. But they have similar goals. Yeah, they have similar goals. Different ways of achieving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I I really like that that kind of dynamic. So I think tying this into alignment, um, so having the foil, David, you talked about earlier not making your villain until you have a party. Um, And I think that works well in the way as you see how your players act, and then you can create a villain that is the opposite of them. Not necessarily on the good evil spectrum, but just on, you know, if you have a party of a bunch of paladins and clerics and just very lawful party, Mm -hmm. then you can introduce a chaotic villain. Um, that may not necessarily be evil but will foil them you know because it will be Mm -hmm. a mirror it'll be a different way of ethically viewing their world Mm -hmm. and another thing that i change about alignment is i add a third axis for alignment um, whoa called yeah we have like an alignment cube so it's it's three dimensions yeah yeah so and the, the third dimension i add is uh cynical neutral idealistic and that changes the alignment chart completely because it, it adds that whole 
other layer to it. Going back to what you were saying, David, your favorite or, or the villain you most agree with uh, is Magneto. And I would say the biggest difference between Magneto and Professor X isn't good or evil. It's one is idealistic and one is cynical. Oh, and that so completely one, mm, changes it. That's so good. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna find a way to illustrate this uh, 3D alignment chart, Jake. Mm. Sounds great. I'm gonna use that. Yeah, yeah, because because yeah, uh, it adds a layer that's so necessary. I think. Xavier has that that optimism that's and he, it's just so hopeful in humanity, and Magneto's just cynical. He is very cynical. Yeah. Very yeah. Very, and very you you could think of like someone who is a idealistic lawful good. And someone who is a cynical, lawful good. And those no. characters are completely different despite being the exact same alignment using the traditional yeah. scale. Wow. The traditional spectrum. Yeah. I feel I feel like the cynical spectrum defines almost all antiheroes as well. Yeah. Yeah. You look at any antihero, they're so they're so cynical and jaded towards the ideals of most heroes that, that they encounter. Mm-hmm. Um I'm thinking of punisher he's very yeah. cynical very very depressed outlook well, he, he's like chaotic good but mm-hmm. cynical he's very cynical i mean i, I compare it oftentimes because i i love the um civil war uh comic books mm-hmm. i don't like the movie so much because they neglect all of the philosophy but for an example uh captain america and iron man split and iron man kind of has more of the utilitarian um, almost kind of more cynical group, the more lawful group. And where Captain America has the more chaotic group, the more idealistic group. And it's really interesting because Captain America has his team. Um, they're kind of undercover. And Punisher shows up. And Punisher immediately kills someone in the war room. Whoa. And Cap is like, what the, what are you doing? And like pins him up against the wall. He's like, what are you? And Punisher's like, that guy was bad. And it's really interesting to see kind of the different alignments split up. It's like, okay, Punish, Punisher is cynical where Cap is idealistic. And Cap is like, no, this villain can do some good. Whereas Punisher is like, no, he's got to, he's got to die right here. And so I think that extra alignment flavor really, I think it adds another dimension that's needed. Yeah, I it's, totally agree. It adds that extra little flavor to your flavor. Flavor to your flavor. <laughs> All right, uh, leaving Flavortown for a second. Uh, what's another? <laughs> what's another archetype? The final one that comes to mind for me is what I call the hunter or the chaser. Um, think about anybody who is pursuing you, like a bounty hunter, or um, if you've seen the original Jumanji film, Van Pelt was constantly hunting Robin oh, Williams' yeah, character, yeah. Um, or the predators in the Predator movies. Um, it's just this Im- even more immediate than the uh, village bully archetype. The hunter is at your heels. And you would use this if you want the players to move. You- they don't have time to yeah. that's a Yeah, that's a good way to introduce a villain that um, kind of reinforces the tone um, by making it kind of more scary. And like, urgent. Th- mm-hmm. Yeah, urgent. Because yeah. that, that doesn't... This this kind of predator, you know, pursuing type villain doesn't really make sense in a lot of more heartfelt or silly games. Um, but it really makes the tone more urgent and scary and uh, makes people maybe pay attention a little more. Imagine if you had a whole campaign where the main villains were all hunting the players. And so no, no matter where you go, maybe you could have a, oh, uh, they're always... like a jungle adventure or something. Um, 
that's interesting because it kind of changes the the dynamic because with the evil overlord type threat thing the players are moving toward that but with the hunter the players are trying to move away from that oh yeah that's true that does change it one of the problems that i have with the chaser even though i think it's a really good way of pressuring players and making them them feel uh the sense of anxiety one of the problems is it can be easy to take away the humanizing or compelling aspects of the villain whereas because they can, they're just a threat that's always there they're always fighting and you don't necessarily find out why or what what the purpose of it is i think you could mm-hmm. find out the purpose mm-hmm. um so if i was to use a chaser i would probably um really step off on on the urgency because you don't want every scene to be like oh and you in the distance you see on the rooftop you know the sniper perched aiming at you um because i think that would get really boring or or tiresome um but if you had this reoccurring group of people like maybe you combine two of them um but you have this constant threat it doesn't have to be quite as extreme as we're making it sound yeah so one of, one of the ways that i like including the chaser kind of villain archetype is when you have some sort of ban in the country or in your in your world where let's say magic is banned you'll you'll see that the way that the characters interact with the world is different because some like king or dictator fears power from other people and i feel like that's a great way of kind of including that type of chaser where the threat isn't just one person, but it's a whole kingdom where they're, it, it's suppressing the characters and what they can do. There's probably more archetypes that we could talk about, and I'm sure I'm going to think of five more as soon as we stop recording, but um, <laughs> I'm thinking now just what makes a great villain? Hmm. Oh, man. Just from pop culture, I mean, like what comes to mind? Going along with what, what David said earlier is like the humanization and like i've heard it a bunch of places like a bad villain is wrong a good villain thinks he's right and a great villain is right yes and it's like that's it's it's so and like maybe their truth is hard to swallow or maybe it's a bridge too far or maybe it's too brutal or extreme but in the end like they have a hint of being ethical or being correct like being having a good point Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. So I'm trying to think of. I mean, Magneto obviously comes to mind. Yeah, really uh, with strong. his yep. mutants not being able to coexist with humans. In the end, that's kind of a good point, and it's like that cynical but true mm-hmm. statement almost. Hmm. So I'm trying to think of villains that actually are right. Um, definitely the Emperor from Star Wars comes to mind. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> the Empire did nothing wrong. Oh my god, please tell me I you're mean, lying. I mean, you think about, he brought so much stability to the Outer Rim, oh and especially to the Inner Rim. Um, the economy was thriving, the the council was dissolved, you know, with applause, no yeah. doubt, no less. Jar Jar Binks was finally put where he... Be- <laughs> okay. <laughs> but what about democracy? Um, no, so actually, Jake, I am having trouble thinking of villains that are um, really relatable in the sense that they were right, aside from Black Panther. Um, but Ozymandias? I, Ozymandias? I mean, yeah, I think yeah. of Ozzy. Like, he's, I mean, it, to me, with my kind of very specific ethical, utilitarian, uh, maximize pleasure, minimize pain 
worldview. Hedonism? I, I think, yeah, he's totally right. Yeah, well, it's like utilitarian hedonism. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know I can think about my favorite villains just from movies and TV. Um, the first one that comes to mind is Syndrome from The Incredibles. Oh, he's good. Just because he yeah. was, he wanted to be a hero and he did all this stuff to, to get there, but he became the villain. And I think that's just so tragic. Mm. Yeah, because it's like his his ideals should be at the forefront as like a heroic motive. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the movie and its themes, they're kind of confusing because I, the themes are really kind of this weird kind of royal blood philosophy of just some people <laughs> are better than others and the outside world should stop putting down these people who are just better than you. Whoa, that's what you got and out of that? I, I mean, I, you, that that <laughs> is one way to read it. I don't oh, think that's okay. the main theme by any means, but it, it does kind of convey that a little bit. And Syndrome is the opposite of that. He's like, I have the tech to make everyone super. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like that equality of everyone's super and then no Nobody one is. is. It's like, that's that's good though, but everyone's super. And I don't know. It's such, I, I think he's right. And he, I think the main thing with Syndrome is he made a few missteps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he, he should have made the, the touchpad thing on his wrist. Oh, the zero point energy beam? But what the thing that controlled the robot that Dash yells? The remote controls the robot. The remote controls the robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Syndrome's remote. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, Syndrome. Honestly, Syndrome made a few missteps, and one of them was not installing the remote properly, so it wouldn't be knocked off. Wait, does the entire plot of The Incredibles hinge on that one moment where he loses his <laughs> bracer? <laughs> well, I how how would the movie go if Syndrome was knocked out, but he still had the control on him? So when you'll, he came to, oof. he was still in control. You'll have to ask Brad Bird or watch The Incredibles 2 coming this summer. If we, were, if we were to summarize Syndrome, um, I think he was kind of a misguided, um, aspirational hero who's just mm. really wrong. And you could take that yeah. just completely and put it in D&D, where you have a person who wants to be this grand wizard, um, or you know, insert class here, and they trained and they did everything, but they just fall in with the wrong crowd, or they, they make a few wrong choices. And next thing you know, you're a necromancer living in a cave with a bunch of undead guys trying to take over the world. Could happen yeah. to anybody. Yep. Happen yeah, to I love that. Happened to me once. <laughs> so what do you guys think about Disney villains? Like, are Disney villains, are they good or terrible? Oh, I, I, you know, I think they work as much as they need to. It, on a basic level, they, um, yeah, I guess the answer is yes to that question. Um, so as I mentioned before, Gaston was not a villain. He was misunderstood. Hashtag save Gaston. Um, but I also think that Jafar could you mm. might be able to make the the argument for Jafar from Aladdin as being D- what? Well, if you look at the leadership what? of Agrabah, the Sultan oh was absolutely God. unqualified to lead. <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean, sometimes it's better oh to have gosh. a strong, slightly evil ruler than it is to have a weak, very kindly wow. ruler. Disney villains to me, I remember them because they're forgettable. If that makes sense, I, I guess I. Well, no. I don't remember them. What about what about I just Scar? Oh, Scar. Yeah. Dude, Scar, Scar was good. Scar was good. Um Live Mufasa. Uh Sid from Toy Story. Ooh. Oh. See, that's interesting. I don't think he's a villain. Well, yeah, Ooh. I was going to say 
I think that Sid is interesting because he's not necessarily an evil person. He's just mm-hmm. kind of a troublemaking little kid. Yeah. And um, but from the perspective of the toys, yeah. he is literally the most terrifying mm-hmm. person. But the toys seen. don't reveal their sentience to him. Like when they do, he freaks out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know if if Sid is a villain, then. Cuff me, boys. I'm a villain, too. <laughs> well, I think we've all burned our fair share of Barbies with magnifying glasses. I know I definitely oh. have. But uh, my point is that um, any maybe anybody, or at least m- things can be villains that you might not normally expect to be villains. Um, mm-hmm. There's an RPG called Mouse Guard, where instead of playing as human heroes, oh, yeah. you play as tiny little mice, and you're crossing streams in the woods that are you know like an inch wide, but for, for a mouse, it's much more dramatic. And they have villains uh-huh. that are things like a hawk, or um, just any bigger creature. In in A Bug's Life, a grasshopper was uh, a pretty terrifying villain for an ant. Oh, he was a great villain. And it was uh, voiced by, what's his name? From Kevin House? Spacey. It was voiced by Kevin Spacey, mm. uh, who actually turned out to be a villain in real life. So <laughs> it was just oh, no. typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the villain of Monsters, Inc.? Uh, there's the lizard dude. I forget his name. So, okay. Then yeah. there's, the, there's, there's the, the, the crab guy who... Was just trying to make money. We could almost write this whole episode and just examining Pixar villains to yeah. see what they do because yeah. I think the storytelling I, is just top notch in oh, Pixar. Unless you're talking about if unless the word cars appears in the title. Yikes! So moving away from Disney because <laughs> I I think Disney uh, I think Disney makes things more PG rated, which can harm a villain immensely. Well, um, they they paint in broad strokes because it has to be really quick and digestible for a kid. Like they're not going to. I think. I think. A yeah, burning. but that's that's the point. If you can't show that, if like most real world villains or most of the best villains can't be shown to children. Oh, for sure. And so I think that's the problem. I mean, with Disney, a lot of times is they Disneyfy villains and make them more PG. And because if you look at Ultron. Um, from Avengers Age of Ultron, he he is a villain that is very charismatic, um, has some interesting, really cool monologues, yeah. um, does some really, really immense damage to the heroes. But at his core, he's not scary because he's not, in my opinion, violent enough. Like oh, yeah. him, him walking uh, through a subway car that's filled with people and Cap is in front of him, and he's just walking towards him. It's like, for me, I want to see a villain just terrorize. Like, imagine if Ultron, and Disney would never allow this, but imagine if Ultron just picked up a person and crushed their head. Oof. In in front of Cap. Immediately, Cap is like, oh my god. Like, it, it will mess with him. And I think a real villain would want to do that would want to cause psychological harm to the heroes well within reason to how the villain would behave and i think for ultron he probably should have done that because that seems to be in line with his um ability to manipulate the heroes psychologically yeah and so like in that example it seems really strange like you wouldn't have um Oh, let's let's go back to syndrome. Like you wouldn't have syndrome like breaking somebody's back or something or ripping somebody in half. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, in my in my incredible fan fiction, that does happen a few times. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, you're right. Um, I think that the the PG ratedness tends to make it. Well, okay. So actually, I might disagree with you a little bit because I think the ability to communicate a villain quickly and efficiently to anybody is 
a skill. So making us not like, um, what's another Disney villain? Like Scar, right? Even though Scar does kill Mufasa, the, the kid's way, right? Like you, the kids understand that he kills someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't see blood and we don't see brains. Thank goodness, because then that would be a different film. Um, in my fan fiction, though, you do see blood and brains. <laughs> <laughs> the same joke. All right. Fooled uh, um, him again. But you understand that he's bad. And maybe that's all you have to do. And in D&D, you might not have a lot of time to have a monologue and have them demonstrate how terrifying they are. And Okay, I have a lot to say about this. Oh, I think oh. in, in D&D, most of the time, and I, I want to say if your table is different, if you're playing with children, if you're playing with um, people who are uh, have a lower constitution uh, <laughs> than the other players, uh, you might want to avoid this type of villain. But for me, if you want to establish a villain immediately have them kill someone just show up and kill someone um in one of our campaigns uh there was a a train that they were on and there was kind of this train robbery scene and there was these uh, hobgoblins that were running and kind of invading the train and so they're trying to fight off these uh, hobgoblins without harming any civilians and the hobgoblin chief is trying to get in their heads and he's just picking up people and throwing them off the train oh my gosh Hmm. and it immediately takes the villain up a level so i think Having violence, especially even having a having a villain murder a very beloved NPC, is an immediate way to establish them as a villain, establish them as a character that is willing to do things that others aren't, mm. and makes them scary. I think a good example of this is um, Negan in The Walking yep. Dead. Oh, yeah. yeah um, he shows up and kills a main character two main characters and he does that because he has he's showing he has complete power over this group of people Mm -hmm. and in that every time negan shows up from then on out you're scared i don't know i haven't been kept caught up with the tv show i've heard it goes downhill but with the comics whenever negan shows up your, your heart starts beating a little faster because when he's in a panel anyone can die yeah. And that fear makes villains better, right? If you have this mm-hmm. cartoonish villain, uh, you know, people aren't scared of them. They're going to do things, like you said, Will, they're going to try to kill them. But, like, if a Negan-type villain shows up and kills someone and has everyone pinned down, like, the players aren't going to, smart players, aren't going to try to fight that because they know they'll be cut down immediately. So I think power being shown through violence is oftentimes guttural and brutal, but effective so i have two points that i want to make number one is you don't have to be super graphic about it in order to come across this way i know that it some people get uneasy at the fact uh that that of of death and things like that but you don't have to make it r-rated and describe every single piece of brain matter Flying out of their skull as it's being bashed. Okay, David. <laughs> Tone it down. <laughs> but, um, and also, you don't you don't necessarily just want to have violence for the sake of violence. It should always serve a purpose. It should always serve a purpose. I think that Negan is a great example because it is violence done right. And that he is, number one, he, as you said, he's showing his power over the group. And number two, he's he's doing it because he wants to... It, it reveals like his character. It reveals like who he is, and it kind of makes sense for him to do it in order to gain the um, 
the fear the that submission. he needs. Yeah, yeah, the submission in order to control this group of people. So it makes sense, but it is evil. But it's not just for like random killing sake, which is where some villains can go wrong and they become too much like the Joker, where it's just pure chaos and mm. doesn't make sense. So, okay, going along with that, like what what are some things to avoid with villains? Like what are some examples of bad, just, just oh, plain bad villains? Uh, Mr. Freeze from Batman Forever, I think. Oh, or is oh, it Batman dis- and Robin? Dis- disagree, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those who don't know... In the 90s, Arnold Schwarzenegger Schwarzenegger appeared as Mr. Freeze in one of the worst films, but also like one of the fascinatingly like interesting films to watch just for all of the decisions (laughs) they made. I think Bane is also in that film as just like a voiceless mook. He follows around Poison Ivy and just like kicks stuff. It's Mm. ridiculous. Um, But Mr. Freeze, he just has cheesy lines. He's not really evil um, because they had to keep the rating down and just because that movie is gonzo madness um, but he just always has a one-liner a cheesy freezy one-liner i think he i think it fits the tone though i think that's the importance of fitting the villain to the tone of your story true very true and, and he's probably yeah that type of villain <laughs> but he's not a good villain no. uh he's good yeah. for that movie but he's, he's bad he's good I think for the movie fits. bad for the I mean, bad as a villain uh i don't know i i think philosophically you can if you have a ridiculous story then your villain can be equally as ridiculous. I guess the question is, is it possible for a competent writer to have written a better but also ridiculous villain than Mr. Freeze? No, I don't think so. Oh <laughs> okay, well, then I, we got to move him to the great villain category. <laughs> but I, I urge you to go watch that film, Jake, because I think it'll change your mind. Cause but, just oh, I love that film. Trash. Oh, my God. Hmm. <laughs> Under my definition of a... <laughs> Under my definition of a villain, I feel like he doesn't really fit because he's not really fighting for some sort of extreme ideal because you don't see he's it. Not in, nefarious, he's yeah, causing he's, trouble. Yeah, he's just kind of like a troublemaker. Uh, well, if, so, I don't if know. You, if you look at Mister Freeze in the actual Batman comics oh, and the yeah, animated series, sure. he's a great villain. Yeah, because he has this he's really awesome. unique motivation. Oh, his backstory. So yeah. until DC rebooted the universe and removed his motivation for some reason. Uh, Wait, what? Yeah, the new Mr. Freeze in in the new 52, they removed um, Nora Freeze. So he's just kind of a terrorist, an eco-terrorist. But I thought that was such a mistake. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, because that's a pretty good... Well, so what are some other bad ones? Just, just horrible. Dr. Robotnik from Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't even think of him. (laughs) Does he even count as a villain? Or is he technically a hero? You can probably play Mm. as him in some games. Oh my gosh, he's just... He, uh, (sighs) I, you know... He is a 90s video game villain where all he has to do is be a boss fight every few levels. And yeah. he has no real mm. development. I don't know. I, I think the Sonic community is going to come after me for saying this, but I don't think Dr. Robotnik's a good villain. <laughs> they're, they're, they're violent. <laughs> They'll come after you. They're going to spin dash into me. <laughs> well, I think going along with Robotnik is, um, is Bowser. Oh, I think if yeah. you're... If you're if you're playing tennis against your worst enemy, <laughs> then he's not your worst enemy. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Bowser's equally bad, at least as bad as Robotnik, um, because he just does the same thing over and over. Um, mm. But it's almost like a joke now. Like, even in the Mario universe, it's just... Like, it's the point. Yeah. yeah. It's just a very, very simple idea. Like, oh, you have to go rescue the princess. This is the same villain that's been around since 1986. Go get him. Go get him. And I guess it's not, I guess it's not about the villain at all that's no. true mario is like, not telling like a story 
Bowser could be um, King Boo, and it would it, nothing would change. Yeah. So I hmm. think that goes to, I mean that that goes back into D and D because it's like, at what point should the villain make the story, or at what point should there not necessarily have to be a villain at all? Well, if you're talking about the original D and D, as the game was written by Mr. Gygax himself, um, uh-huh. and you were just crawling around in a dungeon killing random monsters and getting their stuff mm-hmm. i don't think you really needed an overarching villain you don't worry about political plots or famines or fatigue or whatever you just care about what you're doing and that's the thing that's in front of you hack and slash and yeah thrash. i mean so in that kind of hack and slash game like if the villain doesn't matter i don't know does that does that change D? does D change you know not not necessarily going from first edition to fifth but like does it change with a villain absent? Well, I guess that depends on how you define a villain. Yeah. But it, let's say you're doing an open world hex crawl thing and the players kind of go where they want and they explore. And maybe you have localized villains or, or threats or situations or whatever. Um, I don't know. I think it would be a different kind of game. I think it changes the story. So if you're playing a D&D setting or campaign... And there's an overarching story. You're going to have to play it out differently. I feel like from the way we play, or at least me and Jake, it's a lot of heroes and villains. Kind of like the comic booky. You you have your good guys and your bad guys. And oh, there I is, There's some sort of... There, well, there is like gray area and stuff still that they're fighting in between. Mm-hmm. But in, for the most part, there's it's just a battle of ideals. Whereas in like what Will's talking about, it's a more just characters in rough situations and them fighting the situations. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think it does like without villains, I would be without another thing that I love to do as a DM, which is role play as evil people. And Mm. if I lost that, I don't know. It it turns into a game that I can run, but I would be less willing to, that, that I would be less excited about running. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention here was, um, the idea of what I'm calling Breaking Bad or Burn Notice style villains. And so if you haven't watched either show, all you have to know is that it's this kind of down on the ground, dirty, um, maybe drug cartel. or Realistic. Um, yeah, or at least, yeah, as realistic as, as I care to. A TV show, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they have what I would just call a villain web. And that is you have all these different little guys kind of fighting each other. And in Burn Notice, you'll have a villain who, or, or a villain of the week, whatever, some drug dealer, some mafia guy, and they defeat him or they disable his um, business, whatever. And then a few episodes or even a few seasons later, the same guy comes back and asks for help from the characters. And so you see this constant interaction of an, a, a reusing of the same characters over and over. I see this a lot in the Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight role-playing game. Uh-huh. Um, where you just have this this web of, of maybe not even villains, but this web of characters who just you constantly harvest and reuse. And Breaking Bad does the same thing. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think it going back to what I said about like just adding nostalgia to the game really easily <laughs> is if you look at a character, like you're making a new NPC. Like I think the question you should ask is, can I make this an NPC from earlier? Yeah. And or can I even can I even make this char- this villain an NPC from earlier. I, I think something that I've found out is when I have a more open world game, my players will um, naturally do more risky things and they will um, really not know what's a side quest or the main plot, you know, if there even is a plot. And so they'll do things like maybe 
wrong a bartender or even kill a bartender's daughter on accident. So, something like that. <laughs> on accident. You can you on can accident. bring you can bring or maybe just something like that cause a bar fight and the bar ends up burning to the ground. Mm. Then that bartender can become a villain. Maybe <laughs> just a minor villain, oh. but but using villains as punishment for past player actions yes. is something I think is is really effective. Like if if they mm. go on this murder hobo-y spree, punish them like have people mm. coming after them have people angered at their actions the and entire make city guard villains. comes marching after them days later oh man I, <laughs> yeah i love the idea of when you have a group of murder hobos you just throw a bunch of heroes at them mm-hmm. until <laughs> until they just to and, show them just as yes. a mirror almost yes. just like look at yourselves yes. mm-hmm. oh god yeah. Look at the trail of blood in your and, wake. And, and you're you the villains. So you and eventually it will either push them to being good or it will push them to even an even further extreme. Yeah. Wow. That's Turns out they were the villains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it happens. We found the enemy and it is us. Oh. For your villains, is redemption possible? Hmm. Have you ever redeemed a villain in one of your games? Mm, I don't think so. I haven't used it, but I want to. I think it's. I think it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I think I've done it once, and the player. I think it's good to do this with players that are kind of on the fringes. You know, it doesn't really work um, with kind of the the distant threat, kind of the evil overlord, Voldemort, no. Sauron type yeah, no villain. Um, but it works really good with with kind of um, NPCs that turned bad. Or, mm-hmm. you know, certain types of villains that are on the edge, you know, maybe made a few wrong choices and their redemption could be a big plot point or it could save the players in a time of need. Something like that, I feel like, is a huge, has immense narrative payoff. Yeah, like a like a relative or a friend that has just gone off the path and you yeah. want to try to bring them back. I think it's, yeah, I think it can be really good. So using the Dungeon Master's Guide, um, I want to challenge each other um, and try to give the worst from from the tables in in the book. I want to try to find the worst things and then someone else will have to try to make them Oof. to make that villain work. Wait, so uh, if you're following along at home, we're on page 94 of the DMG. Um, <laughs> these tables allow you to roll up a villain's scheme. A villain's methods and a villain's weakness. Nice. Um, this is hard. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so so this is what I rolled. Um, so revenge. So you want to avenge a past humiliation or insult? Oh no! <laughs> and your meth your method is vice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you got seduction. What? I no. Don't. Oh, I can easily do this right now. <laughs> right now, this is easy. All right. So, and their weakness, and their weakness, is the presence of a particular artifact. Okay. So this is the 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 villain here would be a bard. Okay. So the bard, um, somehow in their past, had a performance that just went horrible, and now their whole goal in life is to. Seek to manipulate people through their music, and they're and they're charming people through the songs that they play in order to gain control. Seduction. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. Wait. So 
let me just um, get in there, David. Um, yeah, go. You can be. So, what if he's specifically up. targeting nobles, like mm. female nobles, Ooh. and he charms and seduces them to get some power behind the throne? Maybe he's even um, getting them alone and then killing them, like he's a little yeah. assassin or something. Um, that, that's it's oh, okay. interesting, and that that kind of villain is almost behind the scenes where you'd be hearing rumors that these noble like princesses or, or duchesses are just disappearing or um, being killed, being kidnapped. Yeah. There's all kinds of interesting things, and you later find out that it's this bard, this scorned bard. Yeah. Ooh, and this maybe bard has to be someone you've interacted with before. Of course, it'd have to be. Yeah. I love that. So what? So their weakness? How does that come in? They they, they are weakened by the presence of a particular artifact. Maybe their um, their magical instrument yeah. has a, a, a sibling, like a, a twin instrument or artifact that just negates the magical abilities of that. Thing. Oh. I'm seeing that like just just this this super charismatic <laughs> seductive bard and then like him realizing his charm isn't working anymore. Wait, wait, so like, but oh you no. have to play it to get the magic to work. So you have to have literally like a guitar battle yeah. to defeat him. <laughs> this is just the that. devil went down to Georgia scenario. Oh, yeah, that's a classic D W T G. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, let me roll up your What's challenge, Jake. Um, so your scheme for your villain um, is going to be... All right. Um, your villain scheme is to ascend to godhood. Oh. The villain's methods are going to be a breach of contract. Just to make it hard on you. And a breach <laughs> Yeah. Contract. And then your villain's weakness is... Um, a special weapon that deals extra damage when used against the villain. So good luck with that. He's like a tax collector. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so, so a breach of contract, I mean, that's my method. I feel like this villain is a satanic figure. Like, this is Lucifer. Oh, he's this like dealing is kind with of, demons and stuff. He's like a demigod that, like, yeah, maybe reigns in a circle of hell. Or maybe even is a good, not necessarily good, or maybe a lawful angel type that kills the demigod in front of him what you know, he breaches his contract i'm picturing ursula um, who like makes a paper appear and she has people sign it and she like binds oh, people with this stuff and then she puts yeah. them in situations where they have to break it so she gets her way see i guess that could work i was thinking more of like a lucifer overthrowing and then becoming way more powerful than he has any right to be trying to be immortal um because i'm struggling to get how someone breaching contracts would make me as <laughs> yeah. a villain more immortal <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so it would probably be a more satanic figure but yeah the, the use of contracts i don't think i've ever done this with players but i feel like that'd be amazing to literally make them sign a contract or like like have them do a de literal deal with the devil um <laughs> to like to see how they would change their behavior or if they would breach it immediately or if they would treat that contract as valid because they're dealing with a demonic entity mm -hmm. like that's really interesting and so okay so so my yeah he'd be kind of a satanic figure he's trying to ascend to godhood by by betraying his contract with his bosses all the way up the line so he's very ambitious so what what is the weakness again a magic weapon magic weapon Ooh, okay. So there'd be something, an old, old contract, and I'd have to slowly work this into the lore. But basically, it'd be if this villain broke the contract, then the person, the person who, 
who he broke the contract with, their weapon would be imbued with magic that could kill him instantly. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so because of that, maybe that person doesn't even remember making this deal. Maybe this person is an NPC that doesn't want to get involved. Or maybe this NPC died years ago. Yeah, this could be the relative of one of the players. And they have a quote-unquote magic sword. But it's only magical and effective against this exact (laughs) one creature. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like a family heirloom that's been passed down. Yeah, but But it's like a plus 10 against this one guy. Yeah. I mean, or if you wanted to make the quest line longer, you could make it a, a, some character that made a deal with this 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 devil a long time ago and then died, and you have to go dig in some tomb, <gasps> Ooh, some yeah. dungeon to find that sword. That's perfect because they didn't even think it was valuable. Yeah, nobody would steal that. It's just like a crap. Because they didn't sword. they didn't know this this demon uh, went against uh, the contract. Yeah, the demon knew that he could break the contract because the guy's dead. Who cares? And nobody's going to know about this sword. Oh, okay. So this is why I love random tables because it's gotten us to think way outside Mm. where we normally would go with creating villains. And we've arrived at Because it sounds so hard. What we roll is like, that's impossible. Yeah. But then uh, here we are with a pretty decent, like, uh, plot line for the the game. Yeah. Let's do another one. What passion. Prolong the life of a loved one. Oh, sounding like Mr. Freeze. That's good. All right. And then we are going to do politics genocide. <laughs> Whoa! Oh my god! For the That's under for politics the method, and not ner- murder. Yeah, yeah. For methods, it's genocide, and then their weakness will be. He's really trying to. <laughs> He's trying to trip us up here, Jake. <laughs> the villain is destroyed if it speaks its true name. Oh, okay. That sounds like oh like gosh. some kind of lich or something. So I already have some ideas. Um, Let's hear them. So in the universe, you'd have to make resurrection magic be extremely inefficient. Where if you're doing a genocide to save the life or prolong the life of one person, then it's got to be a return of like a thousand to one or more. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you're trading life for life, which is just brutal and very selfish. So maybe these would be lovers who've been alive for a long time. So maybe he's prolonging his life and hers. Oh, yeah. Um, but to do that, he's wiping out everything. So maybe this guy has already wiped out every goblin tribe in this huge area. And now he's wiped out all of the, you know, XYZ creatures, races, and he's moving on to now bigger targets. Oh, and th- these things are joining his army, his his necrotic, you know, undead army. Jeez. Okay. I, I, I love that. Easy. And so what was... All right. Oh, whoa, okay, whoa, whoa. Okay. You, got the, you got the weakness. Uh, that's so, true name. So how do you... How, do you, how does he get... A weakness of his true name being okay i got this I, I got this okay <laughs> so he's trying to keep his loved one alive i'm gonna say it's his wife he's trying to keep he just can't stand he can't bear the idea of losing her basically somehow you get the heroes to interact with her while this lich has distracted her away and this wife talks to them and she's just a normal woman and doesn't know that, that her husband is doing all this to keep her alive. Oh, no. She, like, he was lost at sea or something, and she's unaware that he exists. Still. Yeah. And so she has to basically... Part of the plot becomes convincing her to either tell you that Lich King's true name or for her to talk to her husband herself for the first time in, like, Oh, and she a says while. his name. And, and she he remembers says his who name, he and somehow is. there's some curse that if he's ever, you know heard his name again that it would it would kill him but like part of it part of the plot is that social interaction of talking to his wife who's a normal woman who's not this mm-hmm. evil half undead woman herself but she's just a normal woman who doesn't know what's going on wow and that's nice and tragic which is memorable mm-hmm. yeah 
That's good. You could probably write a little oh, short story about this. Yeah. Well, that's been Random Tables, everyone. Uh, highly recommended. <laughs> Roll on them every day. Yeah. It's good for your that, brain. That should be a, that should be a segment. We should have a, just a random table Ooh, segment. I agree. Have them roll on in. We could have some dice rolling sound. Roll on in. Roll on into the <laughs> random tables <laughs> segment. <laughs> All right. That might be a recurring segment. So let's uh, let's open the question vault. Welcome to the question vault, the part of the show where we answer your questions. If you have a burning question for us, email it over to voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. This week's question is, what were your favorite villains in your games and why? Ooh, okay. So I think for me, um, my kind of Neander Wallace, you know, the Blade Runner 2049 villain character, Solomon Maven, he's up there, kind of the businessman, like just my players loathe him. So he's up there. I think another one is uh, Zanzadar, my uh, Rakshasa character that has died and been reborn several times, um, always hating the party for one reason or another from past lives. Uh, he's been super compelling and, you know, just, a, again, a good hit of nostalgia whenever he shows up. But I think my favorite, I just introduced him. Uh, he's, we're, we're going through the Tomb of Annihilation campaign and he shows up with kind of a rogue army from the mainland. And he's kind of this Christopher Columbus figure who lands and and names Portney and Zaru and Chult for himself. Ooh. Like he claims it like as, as a, he's going to rule it as an emperor. Um, and so he's, he's just got this, this real kind of uh, pompous demeanor. Um, and he's just this kind of conquistador. His name is Dorian Blackfield. And he's just this just perfect villain um, that just fills the role perfectly. So I don't know. Villains are such a big part of my games that like I, I have so many to choose from. I, I love I love all my villains deeply. I actually hate all of my villains. I'm not even joking. Like, <laughs> so let me explain. So a lot of the campaigns that I start, I never finish just because there's people, you know, have schedules. Sorry, like David. I'm sorry. <laughs> and things happen. <laughs> Sometimes your car gets broken into and all of your D&D notes are taken, so you have to start from scratch. Oh, uh, so, you know, random things like that. Um, so a lot of the villains that I've prepped just never get used, and it feels bad. So hmm. I, I hate them because of that. But um, one of the... What one do of the, the villains do to you? <laughs> one of the villains that's not really a villain is I like the dungeons that I've made. And dungeons almost take on a sentience of themselves mm. so yeah they they have you know their own the nature of what the the building or the tomb whatever it whatever it is and i feel like some of the dungeons i've made i've been pretty happy with all right will what's your favorite villain Oof. so i'm thinking back and in my actual D games uh, my villains are more uh low level in the sense of we call it the village bully um just small, small potatoes, let's say. But I have played a lot more games that are not necessarily D&D. &D. So my favorite villains are from the Star Wars campaign that I ran. Actually, Ooh. pretty substantially long. Ooh. Yeah. And, um, I'm but I'm trying to think here about, because I don't know, I don't remember their names. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember what they did. And the Empire is just such a good villain because it is both a distant threat that's just a constant problem but then it scales really well into this 
local problem, whether that's um, TSA or whatever the Empire equivalent is, like just traveling and having security. Um, there was one, I think her name was Prule. It was like Lieutenant Prule. Mm. Um, just this really grotesque, um, lackadaisical, I guess, um, it was a Imperial watch post out in the middle of nowhere. And they'd really let their discipline slip a lot. And a lot of that was because of this commander. And wait, was uh, this the game that I played? Uh, Mikey Warren played it with us. I don't know if you did. Oh, okay. It might've been the same campaign. I remember that. I remember that. I think that it was, was the great. Same one. Yeah. People came so in and out fun. and she didn't really do anything other than like live on the station and like collect, um, bribes and, <laughs> and just facilitate smuggling because yeah. it's how she made a lot of money. So she was just this nasty, but also really powerful, um, presence in the game. Oh yeah. Cause star Wars can create some really memorable villains. Definitely. Yeah. That, that oh. game is just terrific. Like Darth Plagueis the Wise. Hmm. I, uh, I haven't actually heard the tale of Darth Plagueis the Wise. Oh, really? It's not something <laughs> Jedi would tell you. Not, not from, from a Jedi. Jedi. Okay. Uh, now that we've proven that we have seen Star Wars, let's... <laughs> yeah. And we enjoy prequel memes. <laughs> Who doesn't enjoy prequel memes? Thanks for listening to Vox Arcana Episode 10. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. We're on Twitter at Vox Arcana Pod, Facebook at Vox Arcana Podcast, and Instagram at Vox Arcana Podcast. If you want to read some of my thoughts, you can find my blog at voxarcana.org. Email your questions to us at voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. The first to create a Wikipedia page for this podcast wins the prize.